I, I want to start off 2024 on a good note, but I also want to talk about my walk over here. Do your neighbors just not believe in salting the sidewalk, like, at all? Uh, it's possible that the ones who don't are just elderly. <laughs> yeah. It's dangerous. It is. I actually, there's a, there's a strip of... <clears throat> of like an out of business um like strip of stores on 31st street and next to it is like a new high rise like mid-rise lux development and it's crazy to see they salted and everything and the sidewalk is like completely clean and then the strip of shit is just totally iced and you can't walk down that part of the street it's like uh it was like cinema chain gang on ice out there i was trying not to go down on my ass I would love to see a Cinema Chain Gang on Ice production. We could hold it at like a like a small venue, like a high school gymnasium or something like that. Yeah, but what or, movie would be, would we be reviewing? Uh, we wouldn't be reviewing anything. It would just be two guys sitting down in chairs that also are connected. Uh, they're like Zambonis. They're like spinning Zambonis, and uh, they just talk into a mic for thirty five minutes about whatever they want to talk about. That's fair. I mean, I think we could do it for our Hot Shots episode. Yeah. Um, and it's set It's set to Kevin Bacon performing The Entertainer at the Billy Joel concert <laughs> on a loop. You know what's a bummer is after I edited that episode, I realized I forgot to put in the audio. I had audio of him performing the song. And I also had audio of your live reaction from the hallway. We Like after we were leaving the concert. <laughs> That's right. You, yeah. Yeah. I found it on my phone. A little, like, little journalism from Nick. Yeah. So, I forgot about that. Yeah, we'll put it in the we'll put it in the Snyder cut of the episode. <laughs> how'd you like my How'd you like my opening bit here? I, I'm auditioning to take over for Larry David as Curb Your Enthusiasm comes to an end. Was that like a good like What's the deal with ellipses, ellipses, ellipses? I guess I don't have to say ellipses, ellipses, ellipses. It's just ellipses. It's right? just ellipses. Yeah. Um, and and the bit being the ice. Yeah. Did you did you say what's the deal with? No. Okay. It was a little more confrontational than that. Right. I have to well, work on so my Well, so Larry David has observational humor, so you're just a, a person observing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, if you're not bald, then you're not adding anything new to it. Yes, um, that, and I, I'm not bald, so. Bald. Yeah. What do you think I said? Say it again. Bald. Okay. You said like bold the first time. I thought. Now this is gonna be another. This is gonna be another one where I have to <laughs> listen back to the entire episode. Um, I don't know. I mean, I got nothing. Is that our opening? <laughs> That's the best I could do. Yeah. Welcome to the uh, Cinema Chain Gang podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew J. That's Nick Ricardo, who has nothing, which is a rarity, actually. I mean, in some ways, I never have anything, so. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> that was a little too quick on me to say that. <laughs> that's uh, true. Yeah, no questions. This is episode number 55 of this show. We're picking up a chain that starts with Juliette Binoche. Last time, we reviewed a movie that was very near and dear to your heart, Dan in Real Life. Uh, and we are taking Juliette Pinoche, and we are going to eventually head over to Jeff Daniels with Ray Liotta in the middle. So that's this chain to start the year. And obviously, if you know Nick or anything about Nick, you know that Nick is a major Ray Liotta fan. And I didn't even rig this. I didn't even rig this. This just this just happened. I was truly energized this week. Watching to, these. To, to watching these because I kind of forgot at one point that Ray was in both of them and then I was like oh my god adds a whole other layer so if you've not heard about the legend of Leodathon mm -hmm. um Nick was this two years ago three years ago uh, pre his passing I know that something like that I yeah I tried to watch every Ray Leota movie in his filmography I'm still only like a third of the way through 
Um, I know, but you got pretty disturbingly far, if I remember correctly. I did. I mean, people uh, people reached out to me and said, I, "I'm it's too, that's too much for you for such a short <laughs> period of time. I'm concerned for you, uh, especially when you consider that his like nothing against him, but a lot of the movies that he is cast in are subpar." And he's given like one dimensional characters and, and he's in it for like two scenes. So the level of reward that I get of seeing him on screen is really outweighed by like all the work that you need to do to get to, get to that point in the movie. You you have the completionist spirit that I have always understood. So it's one of the reasons we connect and also yeah. one of the reasons why nobody understands us at all <laughs> in that in that context. But anyway, one of the movies that definitely wouldn't be in his top 25 on Letterboxd or IMDb in terms of known for is what we're talking about today, which is The Son of No One, a 2011 film, really starring Channing Tatum, a co-starring Ray Liotta and Julia Binoche. And then next week, we will talk about Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, Mm -hmm. which he probably would be pretty well known for in his top eight to 12. I'd say that's like a top two or three of his. It's hard for me to dispute that. Looking, I was looking at his filmography as we were preparing for this episode and- you know, obviously, it's Goodfellas number yeah. one. It's probably from Copland's pretty up there too. Mm-hmm. But besides that, I don't know really if there's yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely top five. Any others? So we'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about the Son of No One in a few minutes. For now, what have you been watching? The seventy fifth annual Emmy Awards brought to you by Television Academy, Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. That's not right. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's something. I I went through this cur- motion picture is not in it. I went through this courtesy at work. It's something. It's the different. Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. Yeah, and uh, they brought this quaint little award show called the Emmys this year, um, and that's what I uh, most recently watched. Seventy fifth Emmys. Uh, two things. One record low ratings, unsurprisingly. Number two, my favorite Emmy broadcast I have seen in my roughly like twenty five years of watching Emmys. So let's unpack point number two in a second. Number one, yeah. So the, what was what were the ratings? It was it it's was like four point five million people, or which something is like that. which is yeah. really low. I think, and I've been saying this for a few weeks now. After I remember that the Emmys were going to be on MLK Holiday Monday, directly up against an NFL playoff game, mm-hmm. I was like, it's going to get smoked. Yeah, and obviously it's a casualty of the strike. It was supposed to take place in September, but they yeah. pushed it way back, which also created some really interesting like category dysmorphia in my opinion like the bear winning so many awards but all the actors winning for a season one of television that happened in 2022 when right. season two was almost half more than half a year old at this point yeah so they have a whole nother way like we're just like we're gonna be behind now for a while i feel like in terms of just like trying to catch up like better call saul being nominated for so many things mm-hmm. And then... Not, and, and it broke a record, by the way, Better Call Saul. Yeah, it went 0 for 53 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was the most all-time. nominated zero-win show. What a shame. Um, but, like, that that ended in the end of 2022, middle of 2022, and we were still talking about it relevantly at the beginning of 2024. It just created... A, it just created... It was a weird, like, show in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree with you about the production. And... I, I know it really struck you because we were talking about it pretty much the entire night. Yeah, there's, I mean, it was, other years have tried to do this where they make a love letter to TV and that's the theme. It's a tribute to the medium. I mean, that's what the Emmys are inherently. But this year I thought they did like the best job of it because they had cast reunions and recreations of sets. Um, and then, you know, a couple other, you know, appearances by kind of like legacy people. Um and I think 
the, the issue with award shows is with both the Oscars and the Emmys is often they try to be a tribute to movies or to TV, but there's not a lot that they can do to actually like get that point across and to celebrate everything either from this year or the years past. Cause like they're not going to show clips from like extended clips from the movies. Um, there's not much else that they can do except tie in musical performances, uh, especially at the Oscars. And it, it really, in a way becomes then like the show becomes almost more about music than anything else. And it's it becomes weird. like five hours. Yeah. Too. And it's, it's, it's just a weird um, issue of award shows that, has always happened where they it's one thing if you're the Grammys or the Tonys but when you're an award show celebrating visual medium and you can really only do it with music that's the only like digestible thing to fit into the time slot it just um always just comes off as like missing the mark a little bit for me um so I really loved just like the set recreations and everything the way that they did it this year because I also think that if you're like really a tv fan at least at least for me personally seeing like an empty recreated set set with people on it is so powerful i just like that's maybe my favorite thing about tv is like the iconography of sets that you've grown familiar with it also was like a big year to live up to because of the delay that like we talked about um for me personally like i was excited to see you know successions last season stuff like that um and it also uh we lost like a lot of people norman lear matthew perry andre brower even like we lost a lot of people this year and um I was curious to see how they do it. The only thing I did not like was it, I was seriously upset to the point where it almost ruined the show for me was I thought that they were going to have a bigger in memoriam for Matthew Perry. And I was aided in that thought by Anthony Anderson saying in an interview the day before that there would be a friend's reunion, which there was not. Apparently yeah. the Academy also, or the producers also said, don't expect a friend's reunion. So he probably misspoke. Um, it, they said that they did reach out to the cast um, and they just kind of implied, you know, the cast didn't want to do it or they weren't ready to do it on an emotional level, which I mean, like, I don't know, I get, but I, I was just really upset and I really wanted to see it, especially because he has a foundation in his name that they're launching. And like, I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to do it. I thought the In Memoriams are going to go Norman Lear tribute into Norman Lear into the montage and with Matthew Perry into the Friends thing. And everything happened except the Friends thing. Um, but they did what they could. They did the Friends theme song. Um, we just we just passed the anniversary of Friends, right? Didn't Wasn't there just a special? Like, celebrating? What, the there was a reunion special. But was that specifically to mark, like, it's been X years? I, I, uh, I just it was it. supposed to, and then it got delayed because of the strike and stuff like that. But... Um, now we're at like because uh, th the show came out in '94, so this year we'll hit like 30 years. So there you go. There's your entrance point for them to do it again next year. You know? Yeah, that's You're... true. In '94, yeah, September yeah. 22nd, 1994. And it all makes sense actually, because that's true. Because then the, the the Emmys will be in the fall too, so it'll be the true 30th. You uh, you beautifully illustrated a lot of what I thought about the show as well. I, I just thought all the producers did a bang up job of making it feel like a love letter to TV, like you're saying. Mm. Um, even if they didn't have like the, a lot for like Michael Imperioli and Lorraine Bracco to do in these sets that they built, it still was just like cool and kind of like... Yeah. It, it it just felt good. I, I compared it a lot to this year's Oscars. It just was like a feel-good show mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, yeah. And, and they, it, they needed the production to be good because like, like the actual awards, there was not a lot of suspense. Mm -hmm. um, just the way that the schedule is right now and... You're right. Succession, 
kind of getting one last victory lap and the bear being the bear, crowned yeah. and beef, which we've talked about on this show as well, um, getting a lot of love. I There wasn't a lot of, like, surprises through the night. And, yeah. and that's fine. It just was like, it didn't make for, like, an interesting broadcast in that way. You know what I'm curious about is I always thought the Emmy Awards could win an Emmy Award, but I don't know that they can. I don't, I haven't looked to see what the rules are. But the Emmys have only ever been nominated for an Emmy once when the category first started under a different name back in the 70s. I assume they can't give an award to themselves, but you, the Tonys win an Emmy almost every year. Yeah, and the Oscars too. Aren't and the, the Oscars, Oscars are always the Oscars, nominated too? The Oscars are often nominated. Tonys are often nominated. Last like five years, I think it's gone to neither. It's gone to like TV specials. I, I mean, it's that's it's borderline on like self-parody if you give yourself an award. No, the Emmys got to... Here's what I think. If we are uh, willing to allow the Emmys to have the TV Academy host come out and speak in the middle of the ceremony, and nobody knows who he is, then why aren't we willing to let them give themselves an Emmy at the Creative Arts Emmy Awards the, the week before? I, I know. Well, the Oscars do this, the Oscars do the same thing, too. They, they bring out the head of the Academy, who's some, like, 90-year-old woman who's at, who at the premiere of the Jazz Singer, and, like... Yeah, but the Oscars can't win an Oscar, because they're not on move, the movie screen. True. true. Good point. That's, I look, <laughs> and I looked. The Emmys, I don't think, are qualified for a Tony, either. I believe it. And if elected mayor, <laughs> I will. You I might, will you might have an opening. Who knows? God, I think I, it's it's like me versus Fran Drescher. May, what? I was thinking mayor of like Hollywood, Hollywood, yeah, <laughs> okay. or the Academy. But okay. I can do New York, I guess. I guess <laughs> uh, if I must. Uh, so that's the seventy fifth annual Emmys. Uh, you talked a little bit about musical performances and actually the Tonys, and it actually uh, flows well into. I want to just do like a, a general discussion on three movies I've seen recently. I don't really care about the quality of the movies mm -hmm. that much. Uh, Wonka, uh, The Color Purple, and Mean Girls. They are all musical films that have come out in the last month or so. They're all of varying quality, all within the 5 out of 10 to 7 out of 10 range. Nothing great, nothing awful. Mostly just fine. Um, I want to talk about how they were marketed because it's a trend that I find fascinating and also disconcerting. Um, and a little bit downright deceitful, if I'm being completely honest. So all these movies are unabashed musicals. They have long, uh, huge numbers. Um, they have a lot of choreography, a lot of dancing. Uh, and the way that these movies illustrated themselves in the trailers, they did not include, except for maybe Color Purple, but definitely Wonka and Mean Girls had almost no hint that you were going to be going into a musical. Mm -hmm. Which, I didn't realize that that was the case for Mean Girls because I thought, is it just, is it billed? I know it's not advertised as a musical, but is it billed as Mean Girls the musical or no? I thought that's what it was. It's just called Mean Girls and it's called like a new twist from Tina Fey on a classic story. What it really is, okay. is a, an adaptation of the Tony nominated uh, musical that came from the movie in, I believe in the late 2010s. Up until the pandemic, it was on Broadway. The Color Purple is the exact same thing. It, it, the Color Purple is an adaptation of the musical based on the book slash movie that had come out earlier. Wonka is just its own thing. But it's a little like Hollywood doesn't seem to have confidence in audience members that they want musicals. And I guess mm -hmm. box office receipts wise recently with movies like West Side Story bombing and In the Heights not doing very well. I guess they, they're a little shy of putting that front and center. But then you get situations like this where 
listen, if you're going to see Wonka and Timothy, Sha- Timothy yeah. Chalamet starts singing, I do think you have a right to be kind of upset that you didn't know what you're getting into. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I agree, but it's also funny to be like, I have a right to know that Timothy was going to sing in this movie. I, yeah, you know, like, no, I get it. It's, it. There's also a burden on the audience to do research too. But, yeah, and it's, it is interesting that if musicals aren't doing well, Hollywood's answer would be to make musical movies that are are that, and and just keep the musical parts secret rather than just not make those movies. I'm glad that's not their solution because that's often what they do is not don't give anything a chance. But it's just weird that that's like uh, their their strategy for musicals. And we just talked about this with Leo too a few episodes mm-hmm. ago. It's the exact same thing. Leo Leo was a jump scare musical. I had no literally no idea. And 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 we talked about how like Leo like half is half in half out with that in my opinion. These movies are full in musicals, you know? Um, yeah. It's funny. I mean, I, Wonka, I guess I expected to be a musical because the old one is. I don't know how the old one was. Right, but, but the Johnny Depp one isn't. Well, it like, not really. It is and it isn't. It has like Oompa Loompa songs, but it doesn't have Johnny Depp singing, you know? Mm. Uh, I do want to read this one stat and, and then I'm yeah. that kind of made my point. Paramount sharing data from Mean Girls opening weekend, which did very well. It made like $35 million over the opening weekend, uh, the four-day holiday weekend, three-day holiday weekend. Um, they said that 75% of audiences that went to go see the movie knew it was a musical before buying a ticket. Okay, on its on its surface value, 75% sounds like a big percentage. But then you think about it, like a quarter of the people that went to go see this movie didn't know there was going to be singing in it. That's a, that is a huge percentage on its own. Yeah, you saw the video, right, of, of the audience groaning when they find out. <laughs> yeah, which was like, a again, that video is a little misleading because it's from a musical number that's like half an hour into the movie. It's not oh, the okay. first musical number. I, maybe so they're, they're just, just like, sick oh, of it, another I musical <laughs> I guess. Um, but anyway, that was just something that like I've been talking about internally with our friends for a few months now. Once I saw trailers for Wonka and Mean Girls, and like seeing this coming, well, it didn't affect Wonka's box office prospect because it's going to make like two hundred million dollars. But it's just something to be aware of because yeah. I don't think it's the last time that they're going to market movies like this because it it clearly has shown to not be an issue, um, and actually has been beneficial maybe for the movie's box office at least opening prospects if people go in not expecting that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, I'm. I definitely get that frustration with not something not being what you signed up to see because i also think that's like the burden is on the audience but the entire point of a trailer is to be the only thing you see before going into a movie so musical elements should not be a surprise in that regard yeah i don't like i think there should be less research going into movies in general i sometimes i try to see a movie without knowing anything about it and so like the only thing i would consider watching is the trailer you and i are built that way but i understand other people not being yeah sure so you know, I think they shouldn't be lied to in what they're saying. You know. Do you think if movie phone was still a thing, the the guy would be like, and it's a musical? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, rated PG for a lot of singing. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our feature Pretty review. Pretty gratuitous singing. <laughs> <laughs> and smoking. <laughs> the Son of No One is a 2011 uh, crime thriller directed by Dito Montiel, based on a book of the same name by Montiel. It was a film that originally premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It eventually made its way to theaters later that year. Um, we were watching this film because Juliette Binoche and Ray Liotta are in it. 
Channing Tatum is the real star of the film. This is 2011 Channing Tatum. So this is pre-Channing Tatum taking the next step and becoming like a major movie star. In Mm -hmm. 2012, he would be in the one-two punch of 21 Jump Street and Magic Mike. Uh, And that kind of changed his public persona as an actor in terms of how the critical world saw him. But in 2011, he was was just Channing Tatum. Uh, He was the guy from Step Up. So he's the lead of this film. It takes place in 2002. He plays Jonathan White, who is a rookie officer, pretty old rookie officer. He's like 30 years old, they're saying. And he gets assigned to a district and a precinct in Queens, uh, specifically right in this neighborhood, right? Yes. Uh, so Sorry, Nick Queens, baby. Nick is going to have a lot of historical stuff, I think, to go on in this episode because this yeah, takes place. I'll, I think I'll reserve most of it for my ADD corner. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this takes place in this direct area where we're recording right now. It takes place in a very different time. 2002, obviously we have post 9-11. Um, so there's like an inkling of an idea in this movie about how the public perceives cops post 9-11 and the leeway that cops get. Um, but also just like how bad some of these neighborhoods are and some of the ethical practices Mm. of the department. Um, and some of the mistakes they've made in the past and some of the things they're trying to cover, basically. Uh, White, like I said, he's a rookie officer. He becomes one of the top officers under Captain Marion Mathers, who is Leota, who runs this precinct. Um, His partner, uh, Prudenti, is clearly kind of like on the down low corrupt. He's played by James Ransone, who I best know as uh, Ziggy from season two of The Wire. Um, But he's been in a number of other things, too. And basically, the movie flashes in between 2002 and 1986. And in 1986, something happened in Jonathan White's past that he has buried a long time ago um, in order to put his life in a solid place for his wife, played by Katie Holmes, and his daughter. Um, but those secrets are starting to come bubbling back up, and it's there's a lot of melodrama and angst that comes from that that kind of develops into a a certain conclusion this was a movie you watched for leotathon uh yes did you rewatch? yeah i rewatched it um and the first time i watched it i also went into it knowing my first ever impression of it is that leota like was really stumping for this movie and i think it was a podcast interview with mark Marin, maybe because it was one of two movies that had come out that he thought like was not you know being given enough attention or like was you know was was buried in the marketing and stuff like that. Um, and so I went into it with um, fairly high expectations and the first time I watched it. What do you think? So here's, I um, happened to look on your letterbox <laughs> by accident uh, today when I was pulling info for the movie. And, you know, I was curious what you think about this movie in my letterbox. Your letterbox rating told me all I needed to know. Um, I think I like this movie markedly more than you do. Not saying I love it, but I... I, um, you know, I'm not going to like defend it the way I do Dan in real life or something, but I do think it's much more middling of a movie than you give it credit for. I actually not, I shouldn't say you than anybody gives it credit for. So the movie premiered at Sundance, um, and it did not go well. It did not. There was stuff with like people walking out and I don't know. There was, there was drama with the Hollywood reporter about that. Um, I don't really know how to mince words on this. I absolutely hated this movie. Yeah, see, absolutely hated this movie. I think, I think there are definitely things that don't work in the movie, but I also think there's a lot of things that do work in the movie. I think that a 
big part. I think there's two main issues with with what Dino Antiel was going for and what resulted on the screen. Um, two to three main issues. One is I do find it to be very like heavy-handed in places. They they drive the point home the point home a lot. So there's a kind of like metaphor where. Shannon Tatum is telling his daughter that he grew up in these castles and the castles are the Queensbridge projects, but they really do it so many times and make it so clear that it's the Queensbridge projects. And like, it, I think it would be, you know, a lot more, it would feel a lot more nuanced if they just kept that as like a subtle thing and didn't really make it clear to the audience, like see the metaphor that we're going for here. Um, that's one. Number two, I also do think, uh, you even called it a thriller in the opening. Uh, apparently, like, in an interview when it, when it came out, Tito Montiel was defending it and was saying, like, it was not a thriller to him, but that the company that acquired it after Sundance marketed it as a thriller. To him, it was like a small movie about this neighborhood that he grew up in, uh, this pocket of it where, like, nobody cared about a certain, like, uh, class of people and stuff like that. Um, now, I don't, I disagree that it's all in the marketing I think you would, if you were to watch this movie without any of the marketing, you would presume that it's trying to be a thriller. It has all the elements, it's shot that way. Um, but I do think that maybe some of what it's missing could be answered in thinking about what he was trying to do. And he, he was trying to make a movie that, like I said, he didn't see as a thriller so much as just like a contained little story. The third thing, and I think maybe the the biggest thing at least when you're watching it now, is it's... Well, I'm curious how all the cop stuff played to you because it's kind of complicated. The movie is from 2011. It's set in 2002, which was very pride in our police uh, messaging after 9-11, right? It would, that was like the... Yes. At least the, the public angle or the publicity was very pro-police. Um, it's set then. It came out in 2011 when I think that's more middling... Uh, there's there's not much of a sentiment either way regarding like NYPD, and I think we're now right we're at a time we're right on the cusp of the thing happening in Ferguson, which completely I think changed. How and that's yeah, place. and then and then yeah, that, and now we're in a time where it's the opposite, where we're really aware more than ever of like uh, all all the inherent systematic issues in police departments. Um, so I don't know if that helps or hurts the movie though, because. In some ways, I think it could have like gone farther into what it was trying to illustrate. In other ways, it kind of feels dated. Adito Montiel himself was like a guy who was like from, he was like a, from like a hardcore punk rock scene and then became a filmmaker. So like inherently, I imagine he is very, you know, trying to take down corruption kind of guy. That's just the background that even hardcore is involved in. Um, yeah, I was curious how it worked for you. So I don't dispute that what you're saying is a thing that is like a part of the DNA of the film. I can see what it's trying to do. For me, this movie is like a Rorschach's test of terrible films. What I mean by that is it, it, <laughs> at different moments, it's a different kind of terrible movie for me. And one mm -hmm. moment, it's like hideously dull. I found so much of the middle of this so boring. And just like all the stuff with Juliette Binoche I thought was so dull. All the stuff with Channing Tatum... I, and his family I thought was so awful at another time it's like a failed art film Montiel's direction here and the way this movie uses editing is absolutely baffling to me the way it is cut scene to scene not just scene to scene shot to shot it's cut like you know when you watch like 
YouTube deconstructions of movies and it's like a bad movie breakdown or whatever. Yeah. And like, like Ray Liotta will be talking to Channing Tatum. It's hard for, it's really hard for me to describe over audio, but Ray Liotta will be talking to Channing Tatum and it'll be like a shot of, it'll be like a medium shot of him waist up. And then all of a sudden it'll just jump cut to a shot of him tight on his face. And then one, and then another shot next of it will be like a different angle of his face and stuff like that. It just, it was like, it was like somebody straight out of film school shot this movie. Um, I, that's funny because there were some edits in it that I really liked. <laughs> okay. There was one I did not like and there were a couple that I really liked. <laughs> there are just like random crops. There's zooms. There's cuts. It just doesn't, it doesn't track a, to me. It's couple, inexplicable. There was one moment at the top of the movie when um, Channing is talking to his partner in the car and he, the when it cuts back to the partner... It does this quick cut as he's speaking, and at one point they're dri- they're the sh- they're driving the whole time. And at one point it's a shot in a parked car, and then it goes back to like a car that's driving. And I was not sure if that was like, oh, did they not have a better take or something? And then I, it it kind of happens again later, but much better and much clearer. That's when Pacino's on the couch with this with the kid, uh, and he has like the gun in his hand, and it says like to this, to this, to this, to this, and they they. It's like kind of the same delivery, but it's yeah, I different shots. I literally wrote that down because I I didn't. I see, whatever he was trying to do. I get what he was trying to do, and I think he should have doubled down on it more in the movie because it is the kind of buckle up for what I'm about to say because I'm not comparing the two. Um, it is the kind of thing that Scorsese would do. In even out of context of the rest of the editing of his movie, he has like one or two jump cuts. Right, this is similar. Um, he's trying to just show that like Channing's reliving this over and over. Like this was a traumatizing moment for him and he replays what Pacino said to him all the time. And he's, it, that's why all the cuts are, I think it's like the same inflection is it's just the flashbacks. You know, when you, when you relive something in your head and then you're going through like, was it, was it said this way or this way? You know, you're pretty sure, but you're still going through all like the details of it. He's obsessing over that. Uh, I think that's what it was for, but the movie doesn't do it enough right? Yeah. to make it clear. So it just looks lame, in my opinion. I don't know if it looks... I don't know. I don't know. Because... I, have a th- I have a third kind of bad movie this is, so let me okay. get that out. It also is a bad, like, lifetime melodrama. The 1986 scenes... Oh my god, where did they find these children? These kids are some of the worst actors I've ever seen. <laughs> I, wow, I disagree. I thought they were so I thought the bad. kid was great. I thought, I thought him, young Jonathan was great. I thought him and young Tracy Morgan were both atrocious. And also... Like wow. the extras, like the drug, the drug addict extras they found, I thought were really bad. Um, wow, interesting. I, I really, the, I thought the kid was great, man. I thought this was an absolute disaster. I absolute thought the kid disaster. was great. He was playing. I, I thought how? he had how. <laughs> what did he kid, do? The burden of his role, he killed two people, and he has to. I thought it's great emotionality. I, I did not believe him for a second. I, I, maybe I put That's that on. Funny. Maybe I put that on Dito, but. <laughs> Um, you don't even like this movie. You gave it two stars, didn't you? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. I'm out right now. I know you gave it like one star on Letterbox, and I'm like, like two and a half to three, probably. At last I checked, it was two. Okay, and that might be what You've it was up. during Leotathon, But you know, I I often change my opinions on movies because I'm a very subjective person. I'm very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think any for me. There's not a single aspect of this that worked, and it just like was a grueling, grueling, grueling watch up into a finale, which I thought was 
absolutely ridiculous and clearly a reshoot. So interesting. Um, a few things on that. One, I don't think that it didn't work in any aspect. Uh, two, and this goes back to us talking about whether, you know, at times it wanted to be this like cop movie. It reminded me of, um, have you seen Killing Them Softly? Yes, which I don't, um, I don't like as well. But it, uh, that that felt more like what you're describing to me. Which right. Is like, so that I it could tried see to what like it was trying to do. Have just this undercurrent work. go through it, and it didn't fully commit to it. This movie kind of does the same thing. It's like it, I think what's interesting is it wants to be a movie that makes a point about cops, but at the same time, it, there there's a lot of movies that exist about dirty cops or whatever that only exist to just tell an interesting story and keep you guessing or whatever. And I think in a way, it also wanted to be that. But if you want to make a, con- a, a a movie about corruption and stuff like that, then y- you kind of can't have both. Uh, that said, the ending of the movie was another thing. There was an alternate ending screened at Sundance. And the when the movie was acquired, I think by Anchor Bay, they, they uh, um, one of their like terms for the requirement was that the movie gets a different ending. They didn't reshoot anything now. But they did, I don't know what the difference was. It still ended in a roof scene, but the ending was recut in some way. So let's let's talk about, like, specifically, like, what the ending is, and then we'll kind of get into our categories. I, I like, so basically, the whole movie, Channing Tatum is being harassed by somebody who, like, is threatening to expose that he killed somebody in 1986 as a kid defending himself. Yeah, somebody's writing anonymous letters to... Juliette Pinocha's character, the newspaper reporter, saying that some that this all this info is going to come out, and it turns out to be Tracy Morgan's character, right? No, but it but it, I, you Channing thinks that yeah, it's you, you Tracy think it's, Morgan's you think character. It's Tracy Morgan. It's actually Ray Liotta, right? No, it's, or it's actually um, oh the sister. It's the actually sister. yeah, it's actually the girl. Yes, Nikki, which is a little confusing because I will say not to not to slander the deceased, but. Uh, Roger Ebert also has a problem with the fact that Vinny's the one writing the letters, according to his review, and Vinny's not the one writing the letters. Unless, maybe, that was the different ending of the movie. I don't know. <laughs> it's possible. He might have seen it at um, that point. But. No, you're right. It, it's very it's very explicitly said it was a sister. I just forgot. Yeah, it's at the end. No, it, cause, and it, it leads you to believe different things, and, and you, including you don't know who the letters are even about. They say a cop's going to be exposed, but it's not really clear who that cop is at first, I think. You think Channing Tatum might get exposed because he's a cop. He's the one who killed two people. Right. It's really... But it's actually talking about Pacino's Pac- character. Al Pacino, who we haven't even mentioned is in the film yeah. until to this point. Al Pacino, he's like... Is he commissioner? He he's he's like a higher up, and yeah. he was his. He was uh, a detective in the eighties, and he talked to his kid. His he was partners with Channing Tatum's dad, right? Which is um, why it's called Son of No One because his dad is gone and everything. And yeah, his dad died, and and Pacino way back when he when he was involved in these murders, when Channing was involved in these murders, Pacino um, covered it up to help his partner's son. Uh, yeah, did we? Did I say everything with you? Pretty, pretty much, yeah. So, Leota, Pacino, Tatum, and his partner all sit down, and they're talking about what they have to do to try to cover this up and everything like that. And Tatum is like, seems like he might go along with it, and then, and then it all ends on a rooftop. It literally, it felt like the SNL skit to what you say <laughs> to me, just like right. guns blazing, everybody shooting each other, like guns out, pointed, and it just, it just, they kill Tracy Morgan's character and. That's how they cover it up, basically. But then the, the sister, it's implied, will will leak the thing 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though Julia Benoist just killed, I thought her death scene was really hokey as well. Um, where she just turns around and there's like a white flash on the screen, and it's like POV. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that they were also I agree, but they were also trying to sow the question there of is Channing killing her or is Ray Liotta killing her or whatever. Right. Um, so I'm not sure how many ways there is to do it, but you know what bothered me? One. I don't really have a spot for it. The paper just being called the Gazette. Oh, I didn't know. Um, interesting. It's called the Queen's Gazette on the window. Oh, outside the on, office. On, okay. On the top of the paper. It says does it the just Gazette. say the Gazette? I guess that makes well, sense. We'll, All right, that we'll makes... get to the location during ADD class. Right, I'll, I'll, I'll retract that one. That one. <laughs> um, yeah, I just thought this sucked. I don't really have anything. Uh, you're giving me all these like thematic descriptions of what it's about and everything like that, and like I get it. I just like I just thought the execution was awful. Sure, sure. I, I think I don't know. There, I I just think it works in the way that it's entertaining enough for, for me to keep watching. Um, and also, we'll get into this with. Well, I'll say that for the strongest weakest link things. It works in enough that it's entertaining enough to keep me watching. One question. Plot-wise, when Ray Liotta's character calls Katie Holmes and is saying, like, you know, your husband asked about the two murders, are we supposed to know that that's Ray Liotta's voice on the phone? (laughs) So I actually wrote this down. If he is trying to keep that a surprise, it does not work because Ray Liotta has such an unmistakable voice. I literally wrote that down. I was like, are we supposed, is this supposed to be like a... That's what I thought. That's what I wrote down too. I think it's supposed to be a reveal later. Which makes the reveal totally not work. Yeah, I think so, too. It's like they didn't use a voice change or anything like that. No. That That was a big thing for me. Uh, Should we go into the categories? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Quote and quotables. Uh, The quotes that stuck out the most to you in this movie, whether your favorite or in a negative way or a positive way. (laughs) Uh, I don't have really that many. You go first. Um, I think there were some that they weren't great, but they were fairly interesting. Uh. You can hate me for the rest of your life, but you're a free man now. Pacino. I just thought it was a nice encapsulation of what the movie's about. Um, I kind of liked uh, also when the cops are in Benoche's office and Julia Benoche says something to them. And he says, if I could, if I could, if I understood a word you said, I'm sure I'd have a comeback. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, that was like uh, the partner, right? Said that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have his partner says to him early in the film. Uh, you're a rookie at 30. At 30, I was halfway to retirement. I just think that's like kind of an interesting like character detail, at least. Um, the kid, uh, while they're driving home from the circus, says, I love the circus, uh, which is a pretty like basic line. The reason I wrote it down is it is some of the worst ADR I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I, another, another child who, she wasn't as bad as the kids in the 1980s segment, but I was not impressed with her performance either. Not that I'm trying to spend this entire... Uh, review slandering children Slander, slandering it, the child actors it, 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 it stands it stands out when it's bad for me uh, you know i want to see you act in a movie andrew i bet <laughs> i should have done better you know <laughs> wow really yeah okay right now real quick give me your best i love the circus i love the circus well wow, that was not that's capture the emotion come on I don't, I don't love the circus <laughs> oh okay so so you can't do the job of an actor <laughs> i'm Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Not until the paycheck clears. Um, a few... Uh, yeah, that, those are all the quotes I have. Uh, I have one more. Okay. Uh, this is like the actually only good quote that I like. Binoche, who... Uh, did we ever say she's a journalist who's like... Uncom- yes. Yeah, we, we kind of implied that. 
she says back to back to Tatum, she says, officer, you do know the hero tide will turn at some point. And then she also says, no one said it stays loved in New York for long. Mm-hmm. That captured the Those are good. spirit of the city. Uh, well, in a way that I don't think the movie really does. Sure. Um, Tom Tammy Achievement Award. That's talking about the link in the chain. Ray, we've talked about Ray. I'm going to I'm gonna link this together. If I had to make a choice, he is strongest link, I think. Uh, I think I think the the same thing. I think Ray is uh, really one of the stronger parts of the movie. I've said this about him before. A lot of people have, but he's really good in this movie, even, even though it's a one-dimensional role. There's kind of like two different kinds of Rays that is, that is most commonly used. One is there's like a one-dimensional character painted for him, and it's just kind of being a tough and dirty cop kind of thing or something like that. And he's just cast for like the menace that he has. And when he's at his most menacing, he's like inherently perceived as hiding something, I think, behind his eye. That's just something he has in like every role. And then when when he's given like a more three-dimensional character, um, that quality becomes one of like, oh, he has vulnerability behind his eyes, but it still hides behind a piece of menace. In this, it's just a one-dimensional role. So I think he like does with it what he could. Um, And just because of inherently who he is, I think. He's the strongest link. I also thought uh, Tracy Morgan, though, was was decent. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Wow. Wow. The Liquid Death pee break. This is the most boring you're gonna hate part. This. You're going to hate this. I didn't have any. You didn't have any boring parts of the nope, film? I didn't have any. I, I wrote the whole thing, but <laughs> I, 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 I singled out all the melodrama with Katie Holmes at home. I think she, I, I think she's very bad in this film. And I, all, sure, yeah, that goes into the weakest link too. I mean, that's she was mine. Yeah, um, Leonardo DiCaprio pointing meme, uh, something that you recognize that really spoke to you. It could be a person, it could be a prop, it could be a thing. Oh, I, well, have, a, I have a huge one that I need to talk about, but you can go first. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into some recognizable things in my ADD corner, but um, I kind of stretch the rules as far as it. Um, I chose an actor, but stretched the rules as far as that guy. I know who Tracy Morgan is, but it's just, you know, if you're not expecting him, you don't expect to see him in this movie. Do a dramatic role. So Tracy Morgan gets that for me. Yes, I get that. Um, but he's like, he's like pretty high build. So I, I don't know if it doesn't, not, is, it doesn't not comes qualify. Off in the I guess it can be like, a yeah. Okay. So it, it'll qualify because it's like he, you're shocked that it's that specific role. Like yeah. He's not a funny guy. Yeah. But yeah. Um, mine is, um, and this, I knew he was in this movie, but it like stunned me when I saw it. Uh, mine is my anchor, Pat Kiernan. Um, I work, I work at New York one. I work on the morning show. If you guys don't know, and Pat Kiernan, is, I work with him every day. I talk to him every day. And every time he's in a movie representing New York one, it startles me, and it especially is startling in a film like this, where I was not expecting. It took me out of the movie for like ten minutes. I had to go back. I have so many questions for you, for so, him. <laughs> so he has some pretty important ex- exposition. He he's on scene of the quality of life raids in Queensboro. He gives you everything you need to know about Leota and Pacino's characters off the bat, uh, and he has a scene with Ray. And it's um, but you can ask me your questions first. I have I have an official state for. I just want to know him. what it was like to be on set. That's I really just want to know. I want to know what it was like to be in Ray Liotta's presence. Yeah. So I texted him 
Wow. This is this is this is maybe my favorite thing you've brought to the podcast. It, it's it is a pretty it is a pretty good <laughs> it's a pretty good job by me to get an official statement on this. <laughs> this is great. This is the most excited I've te- ever been. I texted him. I said I'm watching this Channing Tatum movie for my podcast, and I gasped because you showed up on my screen. And he was like, "That was my Ray Liotta moment." Uh, and I asked him, "How was Ray?" He said he was a gem. It was his last day shooting on the movie. It was his final scene for the film. Wow. He was in the makeup trailer with him, and Ray brought Flower to the makeup crew to say thanks. It was only a 25-day shoot, but even then, he, like, under a month, he still thanked the makeup crew for all their great work and everything. Wow. He see, he said he seemed really warm. He They did a lot of takes together. It was everything you wanted to hear about Ray. Oh, my God. Day. I'm smi- You can't see it. I'm, like, I'm smiling so hard right now. <laughs> I know. I know. He was, he was very... He said it was a very... Um, it was a great experience. It's something that he, he like is clearly still important to Pat. And obviously when Ray died, it, it sucks, you know, but I'm now I'm so I'm having a second period of grief over Ray's loss that I will never get a Ray Liotta movement moment. Not I, that I'm planning on being in any movie, but this, I don't know. I could show I could have shown up at a makeup trailer one day. This is like third degree of Ray Liotta here. You can, you can, you can take this <laughs> yeah. as your Ray Liotta moment. Yeah. It could be my second this degree. This is my, my chain to, to Ray. That's really cool. Um, what else? That's That was the gist of what he gave me. I tried to get more out of him, but he didn't really have anything else to say about it, I don't think. I love that. Yeah. But it's like it's like a legitimately, like, he gets to, like, act like a real journal. Like, not that he's not a real, you know what I'm trying to say. Right. Like, he's, like, he's like asking Ray's character, like, hard questions. It wasn't right. just, like, exposition. Yeah. You know? There are, movies incorporate real journalists a lot, and often it's not done very well. Um, I've seen other movies that I think even he's in, and... It's just because of the nature of how they're written in, it's always like, it's it never really gets to be this much exposition. It rarely even gets to be interacting with a character like that, you know? Usually, but it's more like an element in the background or something. Oftentimes when he does these things, he doesn't even leave the New York One studio. Yeah. Like he just, he just tapes it and there's like a rep for the movie on... Mm-hmm. Zoom or whatever, and he does it within... And this was, uh, this was on set at this was a, this was a, Yeah, this was at the, out in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Just like a cool connection. I'm sure that'll come up again at some point. I wonder if he'll ever be a middle chain. That would be absolutely crazy. I would have to ask him on. Yeah. <laughs> I would have to. I, or at least get like him, him on. I thought about asking for like an audio quote, but I, I, I didn't want to like bother him too much about this. But You know, the, on, the only bummer is that he wouldn't be the first journalist to be I know. a middle chain because of friggin' Chris Matthews. But... I know, but he would be, he would be, um, he would be right in the front runner of odds for that uh, chain uh, yeah. Award in the, in the and also, if that games. happens, Tom Tammy Achievement Awards being renamed to the Packard uh, uh, Achievement Award. Because yeah. <laughs> I think it's only right. I mean, I've seen multiple films of this. Uh, we talked about Strongest Link. We both had Ray. Weakest yeah. Link. Um, I have Katie Holmes for Weakest Link. I also just, like I said before, the script doubling down on a lot of the stuff, like the castles, like the fact that the reporter's name is Lauren Bridges, and it's a reference to London Bridges, which is about decaying city and stuff like that just uh th- th- yeah that's that's my weakness sure um yeah I, I had her i had her as an option i also i also didn't i didn't think tracy morgan was very good i i i'm not calling him my weakest link i just want i i just want to get that out there um i didn't i thought he i don't think it was really his fault i just don't think <laughs> so, he's okay. able yeah. i don't think he's able i didn't find him capable enough to carry what that role needed to carry Okay, I mean, I thought he did a good job, but if anybody's keeping track, Andrew hates both children and Walmart truck victims. Oh, shut up. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, well, I hate one of those two. You pick which one. <laughs> uh, my actual weakest link was this movie starting with audio of Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so that's in that. I mean, going back I to mean, the cop, fits, but honestly, <laughs> seriously and jokingly, going back to the thing about trying to think what the sentiment was when cops, uh, when the movie came out toward cops and what it was when it took place. Giuliani's a huge part of that now. The movie is just forever altered because of the Giuliani part of it. Yeah. Um, for better or for worse. There's one point where they're panning over a wall and like the cops literally just say, it's Giuliani time, which I wrote down. <laughs> That was, yeah, that was more like a bit. Uh, you're right. It, it fits the movie. It fits the tone. Uh, yeah. It's time. ADD corner. Um, all right. Well, I didn't realize a lot of this could be incorporated into the pointing meme, but. Uh, no, it's fine. This, take, take it this, this is, uh, I. Look, I love filming locations. I love filming locations that I recognize even better when I live near them. Um, the very streets that you walk to get here to our studio, Andrew are in the film. At the beginning, uh, Channing Tatum is arresting a disturbed woman who's fighting somebody in front of a Starbucks. Yeah. That Starbucks, the Krispy Kreme the Krispy on the Kreme. corner. Yep. Yeah, right there. Um, uh, the the Gazette, the Queen's Gazette, is when you get off of the subway and you know you can go down like the stairs, there's this one staircase that goes into like a building. There, there's like offices in there kind of. That's where the Gazette office is. And they go up and down that, like, that office staircase that goes down to the street. Here's what I really like about it. That is the same staircase that Al Pacino chases a criminal down in Serpico. Mm. It's all done in the same spot. So there's not a lot of movies that have shot in Astoria and two both utilize this, this certain staircase. This is huge to me. Uh, lastly, uh, they shot at my favorite diner, Mike's Diner. That's a scene where Channing and Benoche meet. Um, I mean, meet to, they don't meet for the first time. They meet to, uh, he tries to whistleblow. He tries to whistleblow, yeah. Um, and that's poignant for me for two reasons. One, Ray actually says later, I saw you at Mike's Diner, which, you know, they use the actual name. That's cool. And two, Mike's Diner closed last year and I didn't get to say goodbye to it. And it, this thing has been open since like, I don't know, like the 40s or something. So this was like... So we'll always have Son of No One. I was going to say, this This is two goodbyes, Ray and Mike's it, Diner. It really is. I, you know what? I should frame... <laughs> I do have a screen cap of Ray saying the words Mike's Diner. I should frame it because I didn't know they'd both be gone. Uh, <laughs> Um, you gotta laugh at the things that cause you pain. Um, <laughs> no, but I just, look, I just love all the Asteria locations of this movie. Um, and you're pride in your neighborhood. I get it. I do. And so does Dino Montiel. Yeah. All right. Is that it? That's it. Yeah. For now. All right. Arian Grievances. Uh, this is where I get to rebuttal and things that annoyed me. Um, I brought a statement from an actor in the movie. You can get a statement from the former owner of Mike Steiner. <laughs> He died, actually, so... Oh, that's tough. I don't know if he died. Oh, okay. I think I heard you, he did. You, you sold it. That was good acting. That was <laughs> no, good No, no, no. Like, I was told he did. Now, like you that. say, I, I love the circus. I like the circus. Uh, okay. okay. I love the circus. One more time. We're driving. We're driving. Say, say, Nick, this is where I grew up. Nick, this is where I grew up. I love the circus. I didn't ask that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's not how the scene went, Fine. I guess. <laughs> uh, my second one is that I walked into this room and it was like there was a literal... I was in a KFC. Uh, it just This it, is so unfair, though. It, it reeked of chicken in here. Uh, I under, I, you've, under, you've explained to me why it Yeah, smelled. and now I get to explain it on Mike, which is uh, sometimes before you come over, I am eating in my room, doing last-minute research for the podcast, 
and it smells like fried food. But what I usually try to do is ventilate the room. Yeah. Afterward, try to do that anytime I eat fried food. I realized today I couldn't really do that because my windows were frozen shut when I tried to open them. Uh, number two, kind of ironic because I chose to get grilled chicken instead of fried chicken this time. And what this has taught me is I should never get grilled chicken. Yeah, that's the message to take from this. Yeah, yeah that's the message. Okay, I, I'll own that. I understand. Because yeah. you're you very, did this like a child. You're very impressionable. <laughs> <laughs> and but, I love the circus. <laughs> double feature. What's a movie that you would double feature with Son of No One? Do I have to pick one? Yes. Oh, man. All right. I'm going to say um, uh, Dito's other movie set in Astoria, Queens, also filmed over here, A Guide to Recognizing Your Saints. Which I've heard just, is legitimately good. Yeah, it's really good. And it talks, it, it really is just um, another aspect of the same world, kind of. It talks about like that 80s youth in Queens, not in housing projects necessarily, but in this area. And also like, which used to be rougher and stuff. Uh, so yeah, that's my, I think it does make for a good double feature, especially if what you liked about this film was like that world. I went with Copland okay. uh, because it's Ray and it's police corruption again. It's different. It's not obviously the exact same thing, but it, it deals with another kind of police corruption and try uh, one man trying to right. go up against a system that has been broken. Basically, um, it does have uh, tri-state area DNA. Um, obviously, Copland. A lot of it takes place in Jersey, but some of it takes place in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and Copland is actually good. So there you go. Culinary and Chain Bites. What would she eat while watching this movie? Um, given all the uh, cop narrative, I'm going to have to say coffee and donuts. Um, I figured I should try to be more creative and come up with some kind of pun, but I couldn't. Uh, so the best that I have for you is Son of No Nuts. Okay. Those are just the names of the donuts. Got it. Nice. It's okay. Then. Yeah. What's yours? Like a C, I would say. What's yours? Uh, a soft pretzel that you can get with your daughter at the circus. Wow, okay. And no pun name for it? No, I got nothing. Oh my God, you That's know, not a requirement of the category. Don't even try. Yeah. It's you know, not a spoken requirement of the category. You know, you know what's like a lazy a lazy answer that I have to always try to get away from in this category is, it, it just it, like watching these movies, I'm just struck by how much alcohol is consumed in these films. <laughs> it's like, okay, I can't, I can't put whiskey again. So yeah. <laughs> let, let me try something else. This movie in other countries, what were alternate names Whoop. of this film? Uh, this movie has also been released under uh, Antiheroes, Dangerous Quarter, uh, Sprawa Zamknieta, which is case closed. Um, what? But it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Case is open. Well, I don't know. Uh, Policias de Queens, which means Queens police officers. Um and uh, in, oh, I'm fr- I, I, sorry, I forget what country this is. I forgot to write it down. Um, I want to guess Germany. Uh, it was called a cop with a dark past, or in their language, Ein Kopf mit dunkler Vergangenheit. Yeah, that can only be German, right? That's got to be German. I don't know. I think it would have been a good American title, too. Ein Kopf mit dunkler Vergangenheit. Very nice. Uh, box office flashback plus this date in history. Uh, this movie was released Finally made it to theaters after several months of sitting on the shelf after Sundance. Finally made it to theaters on November 4th, 2011. It came in 64th place at the box office. Made about $18,000. It was only in 10 theaters. Yeah. So it basically was it basically was a VOD release with just a small theatrical run. Uh, number one that weekend was week number two of the original Puss in Boots spinoff mm-hmm. of the Shrek franchise. 
made $33 million for a second weekend, which is really impressive, actually. Uh, that's $44 million when adjusted for inflation in 2023-2024 money. Uh, second place was uh, Tower Heist, mm-hmm. starring Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. And, ben Stiller. I was going to say Eddie Murphy is the second one, but yeah. I don't yeah, remember Gab- Gabrielle Sedebe is in it, too. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, directed by a uh, horrible human being, Brett Ratner. I was at, I was at work one day. And uh, when I was working on The Chew, and the only time I ever, like, spoke in a helpful way to one of the hosts, the only time in my two years there, was he said, what has Gabourey Sidibe done since Precious? And I say, Tower Heist. (laughs) (laughs) And he he goes, oh, yeah, you're right. And I was like, I can't believe other people knew that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, it just, it's hilarious to me that you watched that and thought, oh, that's a Gabrielle Sidibe joke. Well, it's the only other thing I knew her from. And then it's the, it's the only two words I spoke to Clinton Kelly, I think. That made, Tower heist. <laughs> that made $24 million, $33 million in 2023 money. Not bad. Third place, a very Harold and Kumar Christmas, which I remember distinctly. Uh, it was a 3D, obviously the third yeah. movie in the Harold and Kumar um, franchise. I snuck in with a bunch of my friends to see this movie uh, in high school. It was, uh, I was, I was not quite 17 yet. I was 16. Uh, and ma- now we have a failing theater industry. Say, to, a, yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Sorry, sorry. Uh, unconvicted felon here. Uh, it made 12. Also a name of this movie. <laughs> it made $12 million, $16 million, um, in today money. Other movies that were in the top 10, Paranormal Activity 3, In Time, which is the Justin Timberlake, uh, what if money was also time <laughs> movie. Don't even know that existed. That's a, that, that that seems like it's ripe for a, a chain one day. That's an interesting sci-fi movie that doesn't quite work, but is an interesting concept. It's like uh basically like time is currency and you pay with time and it's coded to your wrist. I regret I regret having spent time listening to that explanation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, it wasn't worth my time to explain it either. Uh Which is the, currency. the remake of Footloose. <laughs> As number five. And then my pick for what I'd rather watch uh, is all of them. But if I had to pick one, I would pick Moneyball because Moneyball is still in the top ten. Oh, it was. Look, um, I, I, you know, I wanted to see Tower Heist when it came out, but it was more because there was not a lot out. um, And they were filming it in near where I lived in the city, I think. Uh, I'd see this over Tower Heist. It really would. Because here's the thing. You don't know what the movie's going to be going into it, right? Is that part of this conceit? We should maybe talk about that at some point. Am I going in? Is it Son of No One versus Tower Heist and I haven't seen either one? Uh, I, no, I don't think. Uh, that's not how I do it, at least. You know? Okay. No, I don't think so. Like, okay. if, if you've seen all the movies, it's 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 what you would want to rewatch more, I think. Okay. I mean, it's like, it's, it's not a hard and fast rule, but that's the way I always interpret it. And hard, it's hard for me to divorce what I've already seen and what I think about it, you know? Yeah. Um, well, maybe that just means you're a one dimensional person for me. I, I, um, I don't know. I think here's what I would choose to see son of no one over tower heist. And then I'd be upset when I find out midway through that son of no one is a musical. (laughs) Tying it all back in full circle. Nice. Uh, also on this day, Andy Rooney died. Uh, he was a big 60 minutes, uh, correspondent. So that happened on November 4th, 2011. Andy Rooney, 92 years old. Wasn't Mickey Rooney. The Papulio journalists. Is Mickey Rooney still alive? Uh, I get them confused. Definitely no. I also get Mickey Rooney and Mickey Rourke confused. 
Oh, very different. I mean, I know who Mickey Rourke is, but I always have to like think for a minute. Yeah, Mickey Rooney died in 2014. Okay, makes so. sense. Um, I also get Rooney and Rilo Kylie, two bands, confused. Yeah, you're gonna think this is hyperbolic, but this is this only is rivaled by Grown Ups too for movies that. That's crazy to me. I ironed my hatred. That's I, I kind of crazy to me. I know. I get it. I like this far. I definitely enjoyed this so much more than the rhythm section. Why did you put why that one? Why did you pull that one out? Because I think that's a good example of a movie that felt like a slog for me to watch. Okay, agree to disagree. Well, that'll be it'll be coming up again later in the year for sure. Well, this is uh, unless uh, unless this is a really this, bad year. This will be the last episode of the Cinema Chain Gang. Uh, we're not going to let the son of no one break <laughs> us up. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that will do it for this week's episode of the CCG podcast do we call it ccg on mike we've never called it that on mike let's 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 start it let's do it let's start it yeah no but i just i called it i called it ccg on ice at the beginning of the episode that's right so that's true but let's just do all acronyms so this is their last this thanks for listening to ccg's coverage of s-o-n-o uh technically t-s-o-n-o next week uh t-s-o-n-o yeah next week we're going to be covering sw and that'll bring us to uh jd and our chain JD. It's, I, I don't know why I found that funny. We are saying goodbye to Juliette Pinoche. We are continuing with Ray Liotta. Over to Jeff Daniels and talking about Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, which is a movie that came out in the 1980s. Um, and also co-stars Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. All that work I did on acronyms to save time, and you explained it anyway. Uh, my job is to to cut to cut through your chaos and ex- get the audience <laughs> on, the, on the correct page. <laughs> For Nick Ricardo, I'm Andrew Roger. The chain continues. Rip Holy, Rip Ray, Rip Tony. And Andy Rooney. <laughs> Rip Andy Rooney.